facing up to your responsibilities can be tough, can't it? can be really tough. These moments that come along in our life where we realize this is down to me. I need to sort this. Nobody else is going to jump in here and fix this predicament. Because of who I am and the circumstances that I am in, this is mine to deal with. Me and Jude were heading up to Scotland last week and we saw a terrible car crash on the M74. It was just a... We didn't see it happen, we saw the aftermath of it, and we, we came racing towards the scene, and there was a, what, I, what I first thought was a madman in the road, and he was actually a very good man in the road, waving me down and stopping me in my tracks. He was a trucker who took matters into his own hands because the accident was in the outside lane and the cars were flying on, and we stopped first, and we were there. And in a crisis, I'm, I'm, I'm the worst man in this room in a crisis. I was hyperventilating. I looked across to the car next to me. They were doing the same thing, hyperventilating and panicking. And I looked across at my wife, who was calm and ordered and reasoned and who said, I'm going to have to do something about this. Looking, looking at my heart, pounding out of my chest. Clearly, in this circumstance, this is my responsibility. The trucker's doing his bit. Everybody else is panicking. I've worked in A&E. I know first aid. Somebody's going to have to look into that wreck of a car and see if there's any people in there who are okay. And I was very proud of my wife, but it took me a few days to get to that point. She stepped up and dealt with the responsibility. It was the responsibility that was thrust upon her. You'll have faced these moments too in your life. Maybe when your kids are screaming in the middle of the night and you lie there thinking, well, that noise go away. Maybe it will just go away if I just wait long enough. And you realize that noise is not going to go away. That noise, making the noise next door, is your responsibility. That's for you. Maybe you've got a sick parent. Maybe you're somebody who cares for somebody else. This is something that's been thrust upon you. And you think a little bit, this is not what I wanted for my life. I expected I got to this age and I'll be able to enjoy myself. But this responsibility is now yours. This falls your way, your opportunity, your moment, not opportunity, your time to step up. Luke's been narrating a story of up to this point. We're in, we're in chapter 9. For, for those of you with a hard copy in front of you, the, the text would be great if that was on the screen just for a second, first few verses. We're at a pivotal point in the story. We have reached a pivotal moment. Up to this point, all the disciples... And all the people following Jesus, all they've really had to do is to be there. They've just been following him at a fairly safe distance. And there is a sea change that happens here. It's no longer, in Luke's narrative, in Luke's story, enough for people just to be there. Luke shows us that Jesus is asking something of these people in this pivotal chapter. A few verses that bring that out to us. But we notice from now on, in the story of Luke, wherever Jesus is headed, this is one of the big verses when you do the theology stuff, this is a big verse in Luke, it's a pivotal moment in the story. Jesus changes direction. Whenever you read about him, he is heading for Jerusalem. Whenever you read the start of the next little story, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus makes his face to go to Jerusalem. And what do we read into that? Is, is that just where he's heading physically? No, there's more than that as well. All the time now, in front of us, in front of this story, is the cross. Everything that we read about now is in light of the cross. And it changes 
what the disciples end up doing. Jesus is making plans for the future, and now the plans for the future involve us and the disciples. I remember very clearly the moment my granddad came into DG Feltz. Um, so DG Feltz is my family business. It was my granddad's business, DG Feltz, Dennis Gibson Feltz. It was very much his company, his story, his methodology, I can never say this word, methodology, it was his idea, anyway, it was his his notion, and and the place sort of, in a very nice way, reeks of him, it's just got his order about it, it's it's everything about it, it's him, and I remember the day that he came in, me and my dad worked for him, and we just really worked there, I remember the day that he came in and said, I'm not well, was the language, it's quite a stoic gentleman, was my granddad. I'm not well, was the language he used. What he meant to say was, or what he was saying, and we could see this in his eyes as he said it, was, I'm, I'm dying. And from that, from, th- from this business that was just pioneered by him and led by him, and me and my dad just really followed in his footsteps, from that very moment, the way that, that granddad dealt with me and my dad was just very different. In order for his business to succeed now, he needed to replicate what he was doing in others, in us. It was maybe, as far as we were concerned, a bit later than we would have liked that to have happened, but this is when it happened. And we have a bit of that in this story in Luke. Luke gives us a few verses that would remind us that Jesus sees now the end of his days, and we live in light of the end of his days, and what is asked of the disciples now is for them to take up their responsibilities. The disciples now are being asked to join in. The Son of Man, verse 22, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and must be killed, and on the third day, raised to life. Verse 51 says also, I'm just getting my money's worth out of the tech team at the back. Verse 51 says, Jesus resolutely sets out for Jerusalem. And I've had to look at that to read it because I'm brought up in a different era under different guidances and it says something like Jesus set his face like a flint, but that's a bit harder text to follow. Jesus sets his face. From now on, Jesus' mission is focused on the cross. He is heading that way. Jesus is mission focused. What is the temptation for Jesus? What is the biggest temptation that you think that he faced? What is the biggest temptation that you face every day? Jesus' mission was the cross. What would be the biggest temptation? I think, this is not a theological statement, this is a, I'm trying to engage my congregation statement. What was the biggest temptation? I think it was for him to stop and to alter his course. And that comes out twice in this text. What does, I think it's Mark's gospel that records it for us. What does Mark, what does Peter say about Jesus when he finds out that his mission is ultimately to die on the cross. What does he say? How does he interject? He takes him to one side and he says, this can't be where you're supposed to go. This can't be the right plan. And how angry is Jesus about that? And what does it reveal his comeback in that? He says, get behind me, Satan. What is he identifying when he says that? He's saying, I see the temptation here that you're my good disciple is putting under my feet. You're putting the temptation for me to stop. Another story that we come to in the text, Jesus goes up a mountain with Peter, James, and John, and at the top, there's this beautiful affirmation of who God is, 
of who Jesus is, rather, from God. And they get up to the top of this mountain, and there is Moses and Elijah there, and there's Peter, James, and John. And Peter, I love Peter, the character of Peter. I feel like he says the kind of things that I would say in these moments, sometimes the stupid things or the things, but actually the things that are necessary for us to get what is going on. And Peter says in this beautiful moment where he's just so taken up and so encouraged, Jesus has just been affirmed as the Messiah by the voice of God. He sees Moses and Elijah, you know, the, the, the fulfillment, I guess, or the very embodiment of what is the Old Testament. And he's saying, this is amazing. This is brilliant. And what he says is, let's build some tabernacles. Let's build some temporary shelters and commemorate this moment. But what he's really saying is, let's stay here. Because this is ace. This is, this is what I thought I signed up for when I got into Christianity. This is why I came along. This is why I followed you. These brilliant moments like this on this mountaintop. Peter betrays himself a little bit, gets the wrong end of the stick a little bit, and says, let's stay here. Temptation again for our Savior to go, yeah, I'm not heading to the cross. You're right, this is quite a good moment. But that is not what Christianity is about. Where would we be today if Jesus stayed on top of that mountain, if Peter had his way? We were at Keswick Convention. Have you heard of the Keswick Convention? Perhaps you have. It's, a, it's, it's getting a bit more like a festival now, but it's called the Keswick Convention. They were, last year, there were about 15,000 people there over three weeks, and the praise and worship, it's a bit like here. It's great. I love coming here for the praise and worship. Praise and worship in Keswick is just unbelievable. You're there, and it's in the Lake District. You're in the mountains. You're on holiday. God's word is good. You come out of the meetings feeling affirmed of your faith again, and it's just, you just on a, on a Christian high. Maybe you've been on camps similar to this where you come away and you just hear so much about Jesus it's great and it was the Friday I remember thinking I don't want to leave this this is what Christianity is isn't it just being here amongst Christians having my faith affirmed but it's not is it that's not all it is Luke is asking us to hear here to think about how we join in what are the big temptations for us those of us who have found Jesus, what's the big temptations that we face? And you're almost embarrassed looking back at me saying, I'm not going to tell you what my temptations are. Often, it's just to stop. We see the road ahead of our Christian journey and we think, man, that's tough. Forgiving so-and-so after all these years, driving me mad, always trying to make peace with my wife. <laughs> this is tough. This is tough ask that the Bible asks. Temptation for us to stop. A lie of the devil might be that he would tempt us just to limit our Christianity, to limit it to the, the mountaintop experience, to limit it just to the good moments. The devil might put it, this idea in our minds that it's just, yeah, you can have that and it's good, but just keep your Christianity to church. That praise and worship, I think that's good for you. Just a couple of hours a week, don't let it get carried away. Don't let it get silly. Don't get carried away with it. But a couple of hours a week, that's all right. You can do that temptation that comes our way for us to stop. For Peter, being on the mountain was not the end game. He was just witnessing God affirm who Jesus was so he could go back down the mountain and follow him again. And so that Jesus could go back down the mountain and go to the cross ultimately. So what kind of people, and it's chapter, start of chapter 9 again, uh, verse 1 to 6, if you're following it along, follow Jesus. What are the kind of people that he wants to follow him? I'll just read through the text and see if you can notice some clues. There's some really good, just simple points in this bit of text that would just 
challenges, I think, about how we live as we follow Christ. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt, whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. It's it's a sh- quite a short account. I read that and I thought, this is an important bit in the story. This is the apprenticeship. This is a, this is a practice run for when, for when Jesus is taken away. This is a practice run for that. Send the disciples out as a practice run. You get six verses. Six verses. And it's a bit unbalanced, I think. Not to critique Luke's writing too much, but there's one verse about what they actually did. Can you spot the one verse? Just one verse there about what they actually did. And five about what Jesus says they should do when they go. Five, five verses about instruction and only one verse about what they actually did. I wonder what that would say to us. It strikes me that Jesus, as he sends people off to represent him, is more bothered about their character and the type of people that they are than exactly the finicky things about what they will get up to. Let's just have a look at a few of the things that he asks of them. What kind of people are his representatives? People who preach the good news and heal the sick. I've been genuinely taken aback at to how often in Luke's gospel these phrases come together. I've read, I've read Luke's gospel, probably my favorite book. I've read it a lot, and I knew it was in there. I knew these phrases came together a lot in there, but I cannot believe how fundamental these phrases are. Preach the kingdom of God and heal the sick. And I cannot believe the consistency with which Jesus keeps these two ideas together, and he puts them together. They're right the way throughout Luke's gospel. When we're wondering about what the kingdom will look like, the signs for the kingdom, Jesus says, there will be, you'll know the kingdom's coming because I'll preach the good news of the kingdom of God and I'll heal the sick and the poor. When John the Baptist starts to doubt about what, what the kingdom will look like, Jesus says, well, it's evidence because I've preached the good news of the kingdom and I've healed the sick. These two ideals that comes together. I think it's really affecting that Jesus talks like this, that Jesus keeps these two things together. It is a rabbinical idea. It's what rabbis do. It's there. It's a way that they engage us and try and put two concepts together in order for us to wrestle with them and forge one kind of hybrid ideal. Do you remember when Jesus is asked by the rich young ruler what he must do to inherit eternal life? Or when he's asked by another Pharisee to sum up the law, what does Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, gives them two things to think about. And as you think about one thing, or as you think about loving your neighbor as yourself, as you wrestle with these two ideals, how can I love God with all my heart, soul, and strength? How can I love my neighbor as myself, as, as yourself? As you get to this point, you are, you are representing God. You are looking more and more like God. And this is the kind of complex scenario that these rabbis want to put. They want you to wrestle with this and to, to try and you know, really wrestle with it and figure out what he's saying. So when you think about what he's asking people to do here, to preach the good news of the kingdom of heaven and to heal the sick, these aren't, these aren't easy bedfellows, are they? They aren't, they aren't concepts that we always put together. We don't always think of our preachers as being the guys who are going out healing the sick. And yet Jesus keeps these concepts together in our heads. What does he say? 
to his disciples going out to represent him. Don't go out and preach to a guy who's starving and he's freezing cold and stand over them with a Bible and preach at him. First, give him a blanket. Look after his needs. If that's his biggest need, deal with that. Equally, don't just go out fixing everybody up and having compassion to everybody and never mentioning the kingdom. In fact, actually, if you can wrestle with these two things and you can be somebody who can't walk past somebody without having compassion for them and can't stop talking about the gospel of Jesus, then that's a pretty good place to be. If, if those are the things that you're wrestling with, then in some respects, you're reflecting God and people will see something of the truth of the kingdom in you. People who take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread. I put here no extra tunic. I think it says that in some verses. People who go in faith. You can tell a lot about a person. I was having a conversation before church. You can tell a lot about a person by how they pack, can't you? If you're going into a serious relationship with somebody, if you're thinking about going into a serious relationship with somebody, check out their packing habits. So much is revealed in their packing habits, yes. Do it. Check it out. I can remember when I was younger, peeking into mum and dad's suitcase. We never went further than the northern France. We were pretty conservative with our holidays, but Mum and dad packed like we were going, we could expect a nuclear disaster. There was so much stuff in our suitcases. Uh, British products, just in case, I don't know what, tea bags, that, that, because we couldn't have any other kind of tea bags. Extra large tissues, anesthetic, not anesthetic, um, the antiseptic creams, first aid boxes, loads of undies, all that stuff, just loads and loads of stuff. And I can remember just thinking, we must be prepared for anything. We were prepared for anything, but we had no faith in our capacity to cope in a foreign country. That's what it revealed. We could look like we could cope with anything, but actually our faith in our own ability to cope was revealed. And I think Jesus is getting at that a little bit when he gives these instructions to these people. Take nothing with you. I read this and I think, even if they took a staff and a bag and some bread, it's not exactly five-star luxury, is it? The extra tunic, as I've looked into it, was just in case they couldn't get a residence and they were a bit cold. The bag was there. Apparently, traveling rabbis would do this. You'd take a bag around with you, and if you were sat out in the street, somebody would see that you're a traveling rabbi, and they would put some money in and support you in your work. And Jesus says, don't even do that. Don't even take that extra stuff. What is he saying? Why these instructions? I think Jesus is saying, I want you to show to demonstrate through your actions that you've got faith in me just by what you do. In this moment, in this story, Jesus doesn't always instruct his followers to not take anything with them. But at the start of the kingdom, he says, I want people to see a people of faith more than a people who are worried about running out of something. I want them to see in that moment your faith in me. I sometimes wonder if I have packed so much into my Christian suitcase that there's just no room for God to provide for me. I wonder if I worry about so much stuff that I don't give God any opportunity to, um, to provide fantastically. I try and cover it all myself, worry about everything myself. And I think sometimes God would say to us, have a bit of faith. This is your faith, right? You come to church every week. This is your faith. This is what you talk about. Well, have a bit of faith. I think that's more for me than it is for you. Finally, people who stay in the house that they arrive in and don't hang around. 
It was customary in these times to show hospitality to traveling rabbis. If you were traveling around, I think actually there are very hospitable people now in this part of the world. If you're traveling around, you don't have somewhere to stay, I think it's likely that you're going to get somewhere to stay. You can imagine, can't you, these disciples wandering in two by two, and the first house that they come to, they get a chance to stay in there. And then as they stay there, we read about what they do, don't we? They, they do miracles. And you can imagine the disciples staying there, getting just a regular house, going out into the street, doing a miracle and a healing, then somebody finding out that these are Jesus' disciples and saying, why don't you come and stay with us? Come, we've got running water. We've got nice beds. We've got, we've got, we, you know, it's, it's like an upgrade. Jesus is saying, don't be people like that. Don't be, in this moment, people like that. Don't be people who look like you're doing this job just so you can get an upgrade. Be people who look like you're really bothered about the kingdom, and that is a side issue, getting your little upgrade. must be difficult not to reject the upgrade if the house was amazing. But Jesus is telling the disciples, don't be like that. And he tells them as well, shake the dust off your feet if you get rejected. That was, I've wrestled with this a little bit this week. He's saying to them there, I think in this moment, don't hang around. Live in light of the fact and this is a great challenge for us. Live in the light of the fact that Jesus is coming back. I think that's what he's saying to him. Live in light of, live in light of this reality that we're not going to be here forever. Don't spend, don't waste your time. Prioritize your time. Think of the kingdom. So there's some great lessons for us, I think, in this, in this text. Give people a glimpse of the kingdom. Marry up your preaching with compassion. Let what you say be reflected in what you do. Look like faithful people. Look like people who trust in God more than anything else and live in light of my return. Don't hang around. Really simple. I'm a simple guy. Really simple concepts, but concepts that should challenge, I think, our faith. Then we get to the story of the feeding of the 5,000 and you're like, oh, thank goodness for that. It's got to a story that we know and we can enjoy a little bit. And just want you to imagine for a second the post-miracle banter that would have been going on between these disciples. Can you imagine? Have you heard guys when they get together the football team that I play along with on a Monday night, if you score a half-decent goal, we talk about it for weeks. We praise each other for weeks and weeks. Do something halfway brave on a stag do or halfway stupid, and you can live off it for years, years and years. And the banter comes back around. You meet up with your mates again. They say, oh, do you remember that time you did this? And it comes back out again. Somehow, you're a hero. Can you imagine the post-miracle banter that's going on between these disciples, these ordinary fishermen, disciples, who have changed people's lives forever healed people these blind guys who walked away who can see again can you imagine the kind of conversations that they're having can you imagine the the sort of spiritual high probably not the best expression that they're on but that's where they're going to be at they're going to be in an amazing place and they get this huge opportunity to step up because jesus departs and five thousand people follow them well these were different times we only talk about the men in these times so it seems five thousand men follow them it's probably more like, I don't know, 10,000. I think you could probably double it. It is an epic scene. And all these people, these 10,000 people, are all hungry. They're all wanting something to eat. And there's no stadia for them to sit in. There's no microphones to organize them. There's just a mass of hungry people. And we see something great coming up. We see what Luke's on about, where Jesus is at in terms of what the people need to be doing. This massive scene, these disciples who've progressed, Jesus says to the disciples, you feed them. I think it's brilliant. You feed them. You've done, the, you've done some great miracles. There's 5,000 people here. I can just imagine. Don't tell me that the Bible's not got humor in it. I think it's brilliant. Jesus going, yeah, these 5,000 people here, you take care of it. You sort it out. You feed them. And this massive big scene, and very quickly, the post-miracle banter 
disappears, doesn't it? These disciples now, having seen the amazing things that God can do, suddenly all they can see is the stuff that they can't do. They just see the food that they don't have. They see the distance they are away from any shops. They see fear. They see all that human stuff. We've got five loaves and two fishes. We've got nothing. And having had hugely faithful eyes, they are now faithless, or so it would seem. It's a very human trait, I think, that. I can share that, going from being absolutely full of faith, life-affirming faith in a very short period of time, to it feeling like you're hanging on by a little thread. Remember I told you we were at Keswick, and there was one night at Keswick where, where the band just played on. It was awesome. It was incredible. And we, it was like for an hour and a half, and it was 10 o'clock at night. It was still light, and I remember having my, my Bible in my hand and just thinking, this is, this is great. This is affirming. I'd been challenged about my faith, thinking about commit myself more to God, walked out of the tent, looked at Skiddo Mountain. It felt like God had just put it there and just finished creating it. I was so affirmed of my faith, so strong in my faith in that moment. I got down the street, Bible still in hand. I was going to get a pizza, and there was four guys coming the other way. And I'd like to say that these were a rowdy bunch of drunkards, but they were middle-class outdoor types. They weren't rowdy at all. I'd like to say that they slagged me off and scorned me, but they just walked past me and went like that, just like, I hope that's going to get you through life, mate. And in that moment, I'd gone from just being massively challenged about my faith and affirmed about my faith. My Bible felt gigantic in my hand. I felt sick in my stomach, and I felt about that big. And I just wanted my Bible to disappear and these guys to disappear. And, and that's the guy who was assistant pastor of your church. Sometimes we can go from being massively faithful to just having tiny seeds of faith so it seems and we observe these disciples who've got every reason to be faithful and yet flounder yet and this is the brilliance of the story yet God still uses them it's a great picture there's a great truth revealed about God here in the moment when the storyline takes you to a place where you have to conclude these disciples are hopeless God acts in love our failures are not a barrier to God's love. What does that verse say? At just the right time, while we were still sinners, while we were still in a right mess, Christ died for us. It's amazing when you flick through the pages of the Bible, the people that God is able to use in a brilliant way. Adam couldn't say no. Noah was a drunk. Abraham was too old. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. Moses stuttered. Gideon was afraid. Samson had a weakness for women. Rahab was a prostitute. Timothy was too young. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Elijah was suicidal. Isaiah preached naked. Jonah ran away. Thomas doubted. John the Baptist ate bugs. Peter denied Christ. Martha worried about everything. Zacchaeus was too small. Paul was too religious. And Lazarus was dead. It's an incredible list of people that Jesus is able to use in the Bible, isn't it? People with flaws, and the more you read through the Bible, you can pick them out in just about everybody, these flawed individuals, these seemingly faithless people, and yet God does amazing things. What is the amazing thing that he does? It's in verse 14 through 17. We'll just read it out. He said to his disciples, get them to sit down in groups of about 50. The disciples did so. Not a lot is asked of them in their faithless moment. Just get them to sit down in groups. And everyone sat down, taking the five loaves 
and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. He gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up the twelve baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. Don't tell me again that the Bible doesn't have a sense of humor. These slightly faithless disciples get to go around and collect the leftovers. In fact, they get a basket each to wander back to their seats with. This is how much God can do. This is the way that he can provide. You come to me and are a little bit faithless. I'll show you. I'll show you what your faith is placed in. I wonder how many times after Jesus was crucified and raised again, when the disciples were out ministering, they talked about, they had post-miracle banter about staring into this basket full of leftovers from when they had nothing. This is the God that we are offering our lives to. This is the God that we worship. He is able to do miles more than we expect. Some things to remember in terms of the context. Jesus will depart. This is the storyline that Luke's given us. In, in the pivotal chapter of chapter 9, Jesus will depart. He talks about his death. He will go. The mission of Jesus will continue. The people must step up. The people must be faithful. Jesus will depart. The mission will continue. The people must be faithful. Luke reminds us that Jesus at this point asked the people to do more than just be there. Chapter 9, story changes. Living in light of the cross, living in light of Jesus' death, Jesus says to the disciples, you feed them. Jesus says to the disciples, you go. You go and reach the people. You go and do miracles. You go and do something. Luke's reminding us that at the heart of our faith, we can't just be people who who gaze up and wonder about who Jesus is all the time. There comes a point when in our journey and in our story, Jesus says to us, you feed them. You do this ridiculously hard thing. You take it on board. You do something. Jesus will depart the scene. The mission will continue. The people will be faithful. Just one, time's gone, just one picture to take home with. Um, it's verse 23. This is, um, hopefully, will sum up some of these scattered thoughts so we can make sense of them. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up the cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. It's a phrase that we use all the time, isn't it? Some of us, it's like you'll say about your bad back or your partner or something like that. You'll say, oh, it's my cross to bear. It's lost a little bit of its gravity hasn't it, over the years when we talk about it like that? Yeah, my cross to bear that one. Jesus isn't painting like an incidental, troublesome picture. Jesus is painting as graphically as he can the truth of the gospel. This is not a nice image. If you're thinking about Christianity, it's not one that's going to tip you over edge and think, yeah, I'll join in. This is a horrible image Jesus is painting here. Picking up your cross. And in first century, this part of the world, you're going to know what that meant. You're going to know what that looks like. You've seen people dying on crosses. It's not going to tip you over the edge to join in the battle. It's going to remind you of just how real it is. Jesus says, with his cross over his shoulder, I'm heading that way. I'm off to the cross in this part of the story. I'm going up to Jerusalem. And he's saying to us, you're going to come with me? Don't know what it means for you to pick your cross up. Our burdens are all different. 
Our responsibilities in Christ are all different. But Jesus is saying, I'm heading this way. Are you coming with me? Jesus will depart. The mission will continue. And the people must be faithful.